Treatment, with the exception of the diaphragmatic border, and the depression for the gallbladder, and which helps to suspend and retain the organ in position, and the fibrous, which is the inner coat of the liver, and forms sheaths for the blood vessels and excretory ducts. The liver is abundantly supplied with arteries, veins, nerves, and lymphatics, and like the other glands of the human body, it receives two kinds of blood, the arterial for its nourishment, and the venous, from which it secretes the bile. In the lower surface of the liver is lodged the gallbladder, a membranous sac, or reservoir, for the bile. This fluid is not absolutely necessary to the digestion of food, since this process is effected by other secretions, nor does bile exert any special action upon starchy or oleaginous substances. When mixed with them at a temperature of 100 degrees F experiments also show that in some animals there is a constant flow of bile, even when no food has been taken, and there is consequently no digestion to be performed, since the bile is formed from the venous blood, and taken from the waste and disintegration of animal tissue, it would appear that it is chiefly an excremented use fluid, it does not seem to have accomplished its function when discharged from the liver and poured into the intestine for there it undergoes various alterations previous to a reabsorption, produced by its contact with the intestinal juices. Thus the bile, after being transformed in the intestines, re-enters the blood under a new form, and is carried to some other part of the system to perform its mission. The spleen is oval, smooth, convex on its external, and irregularly concave on its internal surface. It is situated on the left side, in contact with the diaphragm and stomach. It is of a dark red color slightly tinged with blue at its edges. Some physiologists affirm that no organ receives a greater quantity of blood, according to its size, than the spleen. The structure of the spleen and that of the mesenteric glands are similar, although the former is provided with a scanty supply of lymphatic vessels, and the chyle does not pass through it, as through the mesenteric glands. The pancreas lies behind the stomach, and extends transversely across the spinal column to the right of the spleen. It is of a pale, pinkish color and its secretion is analogous to that of the salivary glands, hence it has been called the abdominal salivary gland. Illustration, Figure 34. Digestive organs, the tongue, parotid gland, sublingual gland, esophagus, stomach, 10, liver, 11, gallbladder, 14, pancreas, 13, 13, the duodenum, the small and large intestines are represented below the stomach. Digestion is effected in those cavities which we have described as parts of the alimentary canal. The food is first received into the mouth, where it is masticated by the teeth, and, after being mixed with mucus and saliva, is reduced to a mere pulp. It is then collected by the tongue, which, aided by the voluntary muscles of the throat, carries the food backward into the pharynx, and, by the action of the involuntary muscles of the pharynx and esophagus, is conveyed to the stomach. Here the food is subjected to a peculiar, churning movement, by the alternate relaxation and contraction of the fibers which compose the muscular wall of the stomach. As soon as the food comes in contact with the stomach, its pinkish color changes to a bright red, and from the numerous tubes upon its inner surface is discharged a colorless fluid, called the gastric juice, which mingles with the food and dissolves it. When the food is reduced to a liquid condition, it accumulates in the pyloric portion of the stomach. Some distinguished physiologists believe that the food is kept in a gentle, unceasing, but peculiar motion, called peristaltic, since the stomach contracts in successive circles. In the stomach the food is arranged in a methodical manner. The undigest portion is detained in the upper, or cardiac extremity, 
near the entrance of the esophagus, by contraction of the circular fibers of the muscular coat. Here it is gradually dissolved, and then carried into the pyloric portion of the stomach. From this, then, it appears, that the dissolved and indissolved portions of food occupy different parts of the stomach. After the food has been dissolved by the gastric fluid, it is converted into a homogeneous, semi-fluid mass, called chyme. This substance passes from the stomach through the pyloric orifice into the duodenum, in which, by mixing with the bile and pancreatic fluid, its chemical properties are again modified, and it is then termed chyle, which has been found to be composed of three distinct parts, a reddish-brown sediment at the bottom, a white-colored fluid in the middle, and a creamy film at the top. Chyle is different from chyme in two respects, first, the alkali of the digestive fluids, poured into the duodenum, or upper part of the small intestine, neutralizes the acid of the chyme, secondly, both the bile and the pancreatic fluid seem to exert an influence over the fatty substances contained in the chyme, which assists the subdivision of these fats into minute particles, while the chyle is propelled along the small intestine by the peristaltic action. The matter which it contains in solution is absorbed in the usual manner into the vessels of the villi by the process called osmosis, the fatty matters being subdivided into very minute particles, but not dissolved, and consequently incapable of being thus absorbed by osmosis, pass bodily through the epithelial lining of the intestine into the commencement of the lacteal tubes in the villi. The digested substances, as they are thrust along the small intestines, gradually lose their albuminoid, fatty and soluble starchy and saccharine matters, and pass through the ileocecal valve into the cocoon and large intestine. An acid reaction takes place here, and they acquire the usual focal smell and color, which increases as they approach the rectum. Some physiologists have supposed that a second digestion takes place in the upper portion of the large intestine. The lacteals, filled with chyle, pass into the mesenteric glands with which they freely unite, and afterward enter the receptaculum chile which is the commencement of the thoracic duct, a tube of the size of a goose quill, which lies in front of the backbone, the lymphatics, the function of which is to secrete and elaborate lymph, also terminate in the receptaculum chile, or receptacle for the chyle, from this reservoir the chyle and lymph flow into the thoracic duct, through which they are conveyed to the left subclavian vein, there to be mingled with venous blood, the blood, chyle, and lymph, are then transmitted directly to the lungs, the process of nutrition aids in the development and growth of the body, hence it has been aptly designated a perpetual reproduction. It is the process by which every part of the body assimilates portions of the blood distributed to it. In return, the tissues yield a portion of the material which was once a component part of their organization. The body is constantly undergoing waste as well as repair. One of the most interesting facts in regard to the process of nutrition in animals and plants island that all tissues originate in cells. In the higher types of animals, the blood is the source from which the cells derive their constituents. Although the alimentary canal is more or less complicated in different classes of animals, yet there is no species, however low in the scale of organization, which does not possess it in some form. The little polyp has only one digestive cavity, which is a pouch in the interior of the body. In some animals circulation is not distinct from digestion. In others respiration and digestion are performed by the same organs. But as we rise in the scale of animal life, digestion and circulation are accomplished in separate cavities, and the functions of nutrition become more complex and distinct. Chapter V Physiological Anatomy Absorption 
Absorption is the vital function by which nutritive materials are selected and imbibed for the sustenance of the body. Absorption, like all other functional processes, employs agents to effect its purposes, and the villi of the small intestine, with their numberless projecting organs, are specially employed to imbibe fluid substances, this they do with a celerity commensurate to the importance and extent of their duties. They are little vascular prominences of the mucous membrane, arising from the interior surface of the small intestine. Each villus has two sets of vessels. 1. The blood vessels, which, by their frequent blending, form a complete network beneath the external epithelium, they unite at the base of the villus, forming a minute vein, which is one of the sources of the portal vein. 2. In the center of the villus is another vessel, with thinner and more transparent walls, which is the commencement of a lacteal. The lacteals originate in the walls of the alimentary canal, are very numerous in the small intestine, and, passing between the lamina of the mesentery, they terminate in the receptaculum chili, or reservoir for the chyle. The mesentery consists of a double layer of cellular and adipose tissue. It encloses the blood vessels, lacteals, and nerves of the small intestine, together with its accessory glands. It is joined to the posterior abdominal wall by a narrow root, anteriorly. It is attached to the whole length of the small intestine. The lacteals are known as the absorbents of the intestinal walls, and after digestion is accomplished, are found to contain a white, milky fluid, called chyle. The chyle does not represent the entire product of digestion, but only the fatty substances suspended in a serous fluid. Formerly, it was supposed that the lacteals were the only agents employed in absorption. But more recent investigations have shown that the blood vessels participate equally in the process, and are frequently the more active and important of the two. Experiments upon living animals have proved that absorption of poisonous substances occurs, even when all communication by way of the lacteals and lymphatics is obstructed, the passage by the blood vessels alone remaining, the absorbent power which the blood vessels of the alimentary canal possess, is not limited to alimentary substances, but through them. Soluble matters of almost every description are received into the circulation. The lymphatics are not less important organs in the process of absorption. Nearly every part of the body is permeated by a second series of capillaries, closely interlaced with the blood vessels, collectively termed the lymphatic system. Their origin is not known, but they appear to form a plexus in the tissues, from which their converging trunks arise. They are composed of minute tubes of delicate membrane and from their network arrangement they successively unite and finally terminate in two main trunks, called the great lymphatic veins. The lymphatics, instead of commencing on the intestinal walls, as do the lacteals, are distributed through most of the vascular tissues as well as the skin. The lymphatic circulation is not unlike that of the blood, its circulatory apparatus island however, more delicate, and its functions are not so well understood. The lymph which circulates through the lymphatic vessels is an alkaline fluid composed of a plasma and corpuscles. It may be considered as blood deprived of its red corpuscles and diluted with water. Nothing very definite is known respecting the functions of this fluid. A large proportion of its constituents is derived from the blood, and the exact connection of these substances to nutrition is not properly understood. Some excrementitious matters are supposed to be taken from the tissues by the lymph and discharged into the blood to be ultimately removed from the system. The lymph accordingly exerts an important function by removing a portion of the decayed tissues from the body. Illustration, Figure 37. 1. A representation of a lymphatic vessel highly magnified. 2. Lymphatic valves. 3. 
a lymphatic gland and its vessels. In all animals which possess a lacteal system there is also a lymphatic system, the one being the complement of the other. The fact that lymph and chyle are both conveyed into the general current of circulation, leads to the inference that the lymph, as well as the chyle, aids in the process of nutrition. The body is continually undergoing change, and vital action implies waste of tissues, as well as their growth. Those organs which are the instruments of motion, as the muscles, cannot be employed without wear and waste of their component parts. Renovated tissues must replace those which are worn out, and it is a part of the function of the absorbents to convey nutritive material into the general circulation. Researches in microscopical anatomy had shown that the skin contains multitudes of lymphatic vessels and that it is a powerful absorbent. Absorption is one of the earliest and most essential functions of animal and vegetable tissues. The simpler plants consist of only a few cells, all of which are employed in absorption, but in the flowering plants this function is performed by the roots. It is accomplished on the same general principles in animals, yet it presents more modifications and a greater number of organs than in vegetables. While animals receive their food into a sac, or bag called the stomach, and are provided with absorbent vessels such as nowhere exist in vegetables, plants plunge their absorbent organs into the earth. Once they derive nourishing substances, in the lower order of animals, as in sponges, this function is performed by contiguous cells, in a manner almost as elementary as in plants, in none of the invertebrate animals is there any special absorbent system, internal absorption is classified by some authors as follows, interstitial, recrementitial, and excrementitial, by others as accidental, venous, and cutaneous, the general cutaneous and mucous surfaces exhale as well as absorb, thus the skin, by means of its sudoriferous glands, exhales moisture, and is at the same time as before stated, a powerful absorbent, the mucous surface of the lungs is continually throwing off carbonic acid and absorbing oxygen, and through their surface poisons are sometimes taken into the blood, the continual wear and waste to which living tissues are subject, makes necessary the provision of such a system of vessels for conveying away the worn out materials and supplying the body with new. Chapter VI. Physical and Vital Properties of the Blood. Illustration, Figure 38. Red corpuscles of human blood, represented at, as they are seen when rather beyond the focus of the microscope, and at as they appear when, within the focus, magnified 400 diameters. Illustration, Figure 39 development of human lymph and chyle corpuscles into a red corpuscles of blood, a lymph, or white blood corpuscle, the same in process of conversion into a red corpuscle, a lymph corpuscle with the cell wall raised up around it by the action of water, a lymph corpuscle, from which the granules have almost disappeared, a lymph corpuscle, acquiring color, a single granule, like a nucleus, remains, a red corpuscle fully developed, blood is the animal fluid by which the tissues of the body are nourished, this preeminently vital fluid permeates every organ, distributes nutritive material to every texture, is essentially modified by respiration, and, finally, is the source of every secretion and excretion. Blood has four constituents, fibrin, albumin, salts which elements, in solution, form the liquor sanguinis, and the corpuscles. Microscopical examination shows that the corpuscles are of two kinds, known as the red and the white the former being by far the more abundant, they are circular in form and have a smooth exterior, and are on an average 13200 part of an inch in diameter, and are about one-fourth of that in thickness, hence more than 10 millions of them may lie on a space an inch square, if spread out in thin layers and subjected to transmitted light, 
they present a slightly yellowish color, but when crowded together and viewed by refracted light, exhibit a deep red color. These blood corpuscles have been termed discs, and are not, as some have supposed, solid material, but are very nearly fluid. The red corpuscles although subjected to continual movement, have a tendency to approach one another, and when their flattened surfaces come in contact, so firmly do they adhere that they change their shape rather than submit to a separation. If separated, however, they return to their usual form. The colorless corpuscles are larger than the red and differ from them in being extremely irregular in their shape, and in their tendency to adhere to a smooth surface, while the red corpuscles float about and tumble over one another. They are chiefly remarkable for their continual variation in form. The shape of the red corpuscles is only altered by external influences, but the white are constantly undergoing alterations, the result of changes taking place within their own substance. When diluted with water and placed under the microscope they are found to consist of a spheroidal sac, containing a clear or granular fluid and a spheroidal vesicle, which is termed the nucleus. They have been regarded by some physiologists as identical with those of the lymph and chyle. Dr. Carpenter believes that the function of these cells is to convert albumin into fibrin, by the simple process of cell growth. It is generally believed that the red corpuscles are derived in some way from the colorless. It is supposed that the red corpuscle is nearly the nucleus of a colorless corpuscle enlarged, flattened, colored and liberated by the bursting of the wall of its cell. When blood is taken from an artery and allowed to remain at rest, it separates into two parts, a solid mass, called the clot, largely composed of fibrin, and a fluid known as the serum, in which the clot is suspended. This process is termed coagulation. The serum, mostly composed of albumin, is a transparent, straw-colored fluid, having the odor and taste of blood. The whole quantity of blood in the body is estimated on an average to be about one-ninth of its entire weight. The distinctions between the arterial and the venous blood are marked, since in the arterial system the blood is uniformly bright red, and in the venous of a very dark red color the blood corpuscles contain both oxygen and carbonic acid in solution. When carbonic acid predominates, the blood is dark red, when oxygen, scarlet, in the lungs, the corpuscles give up carbonic acid, and absorb a fresh supply of oxygen, while in the general circulation the oxygen disappears in the process of tissue transformation, and is replaced, in the venous blood, by carbonic acid, the nutritive portions of food are converted into a homogeneous fluid, which pervades every part of the body, is the basis of every tissue, and which is termed the blood, this varies in color and composition in different animals, in the polyp the nutritive fluid is known as chyme, in many mollusks, as well as articulates, it is called chyle, but in vertebrates, it is more highly organized and is called blood, in all the higher animal types it is of a red color, although redness is not one of its essential qualities, some tribes of animals possess true blood, which is not red, thus the blood of the insect is colorless and transparent, that of the rectal yellowish, in the fish the principal part is without color, but the blood of the bird is deep red, the blood of the mammalia is of a bright scarlet hue, the temperature of the blood varies in different species, as well as in animals of the same species under different physiological conditions, for this reason, some animals are called cold blood, disease also modifies the temperature of the blood, thus in fevers it is generally increased, but in cholera greatly diminished, the blood has been aptly termed the vital fluid, since there is a constant flow from the heart to the tissues and organs of the body, and a continual return after it has circulated through these parts, its presence in every part of the body is one of the essential conditions of animal life.
and is affected by a special set of organs, called the circulatory organs. Chapter VII. Physiological Anatomy. Circulatory organs, having considered the formation of chyle, traced it through the digestive process, seen its transmission into the vena cava, and, finally, its conversion into blood. We shall now describe how it is distributed to every part of the system. This is accomplished through organs which, from the round of duties they perform, are called circulatory. These are the heart, arteries, veins, and capillaries, which constitute the vascular system, within the thorax or chest of the human body, and enclosed within a membranous sac, called the pericardium, is the great force pump of the system, the heart, this organ, to which all the arteries and veins of the body may be either directly or indirectly traced, is roughly estimated to be equal in size to the closed fist of the individual to whom it belongs, it has a broad end turned upwards, and a little to the right side, termed its base, and a point end called its apex, turned downwards, forwards, and to the left side, and lying beneath a point about an inch to the right of, and below, the left nipple, or just below the fifth rib, attached to the rest of the body only by the great blood vessels which issue from and enter it at its base, the heart is the most mobile organ in the economy, being free to move in different directions, the heart is divided into two great cavities by a fixed partition, which extends from the base to the apex of the organ, and which prevents any direct communication between them. Each of these great cavities is further subdivided transversely by a movable partition, the cavity above each transverse partition being called the auricle, and the cavity below, the ventricle, right or left, as the case may be. Illustration, Figure 40, General View of the Heart and Lungs, Trachea, or Windpipe, Aorta, Pulmonary Artery, 1, 2, Branches of the pulmonary artery, one going to the right, the other to the left line. H. The heart. The walls of the auricles are much thinner than those of the ventricles, and the wall of the right ventricle is much thinner than that of the left, from the fact that the ventricles have more work to perform than the auricles, and the left ventricle more than the right. In structure, the heart is composed almost entirely of muscular fibers, which are arranged in a very complex and wonderful manner. The outer surface of the heart is covered with the pericardium, which closely adheres to the muscular substance. Inside, the cavities are lined with a thin membrane, called the endocardium, at the junction between the auricles and ventricles. The apertures of communication between their cavities are strengthened by fibrous rings. Attached to these fibrous rings are the movable partitions or valves, between the auricles and the ventricles, the one on the right side of the heart being called the tricuspid valve and the one on the left side the mitral valve, a number of fine, but strong, tendinous cords, called cordy tendini, connect the edges and apices of these valves with column-like elevations of the fleshy substance of the walls of the ventricles, called columnae carniae, illustration, figure 41, 1, the descending vena cava, 2, the ascending vena cava, 3, the right auricle, 4, the opening between the right auricle and the right ventricle, 5, the right ventricle, 6, the tricuspid valves, 7, the pulmonary artery, 8, 8, the branches of the pulmonary artery which pass to the right and the left line, 9, the semilunar valves of the pulmonary artery, 10, the septum between the two ventricles of the heart, 11, 11, the pulmonary veins, 12, the left auricle, 13, the opening between the left auricle and ventricle, 14, the left ventricle, 15, the mitral valves, 16, 16, the aorta, 17, 
the semilunar valves of the aorta. The valves are so arranged that they present no obstacle to the free flow of blood from the auricles into the ventricles, but if any is forced the other way, it gets between the valve and the wall of the heart, and drives the valve backwards and upwards, thus forming a transverse partition between the auricle and ventricle, through which no fluid can pass. At the base of the heart are given off two large arteries, one on the right side, which conveys the blood to the lungs, called the pulmonary artery, and one on the left side which conveys the blood to the system in general, called the aorta, at the junction of each of these great vessels with its corresponding ventricle, is another valvular apparatus, consisting of three pouch-like valves, called the semilunar valves, from their resemblance, in shape, to a half-moon, being placed on a level and meeting in the middle line, they entirely prevent the passage of any fluid which may be forced along the artery towards the heart, but, flapping back, They offer no obstruction to the free flow of blood from the ventricles into the arteries. The arteries, being always found empty after death, were supposed by the ancients, who were ignorant of the circulation of the blood, to be tubes containing air, hence their name, which is derived from a Greek word and signifies an air tube. Arteries are the cylindrical tubes which carry blood to every part of the system. All the arteries, except the coronary which supply the substance of the heart, arise from the two main trunks the pulmonary artery and the aorta, they are of a yellowish-white color, and their inner surface is smooth, the arteries have three coats, one, the external coat, which is destitute of fat, and composed chiefly of cellular tissue, is very firm and elastic, and can readily be dissected from the middle coat, two, the middle, or fibrous coat, is thicker than the external, and composed of yellowish fibers, its chief property is contractility, three, The internal coat consists of a colorless, thin, transparent membrane, yet so strong that it can, it is thought, better resist a powerful pressure than either of the others. Arteries are very elastic as well as extensible, and their chief extensibility is in length. If an artery of a dead body be divided, although empty, its cylindrical form will be preserved. The veins are the vessels through which the venous blood returns to the auricles of the heart. They are more numerous than the arteries and originate from numerous capillary tubes, while the arteries are given off from main trunks, in some parts of the body, the veins correspond in number to the arteries, while in others, there are two veins to every artery, the veins commence by minute roots in the capillaries, which are everywhere distributed through the body, and gradually increase in size, until they unite and become large trunks, conveying the dark blood to the heart, the veins, like the arteries, have three coats, the external, or cellular coat, resembles that of the arteries, the middle is fibrous, but thinner than the corresponding one of the arteries, and the internal coat is serous, and analogous to that of those vessels, the veins belong to the three following classes, 1, the systemic veins, which bring the blood from different parts of the body and discharge it into the vena cava, by means of which it is conveyed to the heart, 2, the pulmonary veins, which bring the arterial, or bright red blood from the lungs and carry it to the left auricle, 3, the veins of the portal system, which originate in the capillaries of the abdominal organs, then convert into trunks and enter the liver, to branch off again into divisions and subdivisions of the minutest character, the capillaries form an extremely fine network, and are distributed to every part of the body, they vary in diameter from 13500 to 12000 of an inch, they are so universally prevalent throughout the skin, that the puncture of a needle would wound a large number of them. These vessels receive the blood and bring it into intimate contact with the tissues, 
which take from it the principal part of its oxygen and other elements, and give up to it carbonic acid and the other waste products resulting from the transformation of the tissues, which are transmitted through the veins to the heart, and thence by the arteries to the lungs and various excretory organs, the blood from the system in general, except the lungs, is poured into the right auricle by two large veins, called the superior and the inferior vena cava, and that returning from the lungs is poured into the left auricle by the pulmonary veins. During life the heart contracts rhythmically, the contractions commencing at the base, in each auricle, and extending towards the apex. Now it follows, from the anatomical arrangement of this organ, that when the auricles contract, the blood contained in them is forced through the auriculoventricular openings into the ventricles, the contractions then extending to the ventricles, in a wave-like manner, the great proportion of the blood, being prevented from re-entering the auricles by the tricuspid and mitral valves, is forced onward into the pulmonary artery from the right ventricle, and into the aorta from the left ventricle, when the contents of the ventricles are suddenly forced into these great blood vessels, a shock is given to the entire mass of fluid which they contain, and this shock is speedily propagated along their branches, being known at the wrist as the pulse, on inspection, between the fifth and sixth ribs on the left side of the chest, a movement is perceptible, and, if the hand be applied, the impulse may be felt, this is known as the throbbing, or beating of the heart, if the ear is placed over the region of the heart, certain sounds are heard, which recur with great regularity, first is heard a comparatively long, dull sound, then a short, sharp sound, then a pause, and then the long, dull sound again, the first sound is caused mainly by the tricuspid and mitral valves, and the second is the result of sudden closure of the semilunar valves, no language can adequately describe the beauty of the circulatory system, the constant vital flow through the larger vessels, and the incessant activity of those so minute that they are almost imperceptible, fully illustrate the perfectness of the mechanism of the human body, and the wisdom and goodness of him who is its author. Experiments have shown that the small arteries may be directly influenced through the nervous system, which regulates their caliber by controlling the state of contraction of their muscular walls. The effect of this influence of the nervous system enables it to control the circulation over certain areas, and, not with, 